This is Mind Your Mornings with Anna Chandy, a fortnightly podcast that takes you on the journey to a brave new you. Hi, this is Anna Chandy, your host today for Mind Your Mornings. As you are aware, we have been hosting these podcasts for all of us to understand and educate ourselves. And today I have a very, very special guest with me who you would find not just extremely interesting to listen to, but you would also be impact with her breadth of knowledge. I welcome Dr. Ramya Mohan, who is an MBBS, FRCS in psychiatry. Now, Ramya has an extensive, uh, you know, resume and CV, and I'm going to only share some aspects of it just for you to see and understand her breadth of experience. Dr. Ramya Mohan is a senior NHS developmental psychiatrist, medical educator, qualified educational supervisor, music composer, trained singer, exhibiting art, invited author, she's an orator, and a humanitarian working across Asia and Europe. The Royal College of Psychiatrists have commended her as a global pioneer in amalgamating creative arts and neuroscience for youth and societal development, awarding her a fellowship and nominating her twice for the Communicator of the Year Award. Her original work has pioneered a global movement in integrating music and creative arts with neuroscience to support optimal mental health across the West and East over the years. Her internationally acclaimed neuroscientific therapeutic technique, CAPE, which is the creative arts for processing emotions, has dedicated users across the globe. So as you can see, just how much she knows and, and across all domains, whether it's music, arts, mental health, and she's got the experience. And what is really interesting is how she has drawn from these various fields and created CAPE that enables adolescents and people to work uh, you know, what I would say cohesively in the mental health uh, landscape. So Ramya, it's a really a pleasure and I'm uh, just so honored that you're with me on this podcast. In fact, you're the first person I have decided to interview and I had you in my mind because in my early interactions with you, I was so impacted, not just on your commitment, but also in your interest in various domains and how you have worked in these areas. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you so much for your very kind words, and I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me as your guest this morning. So I would ask you with a very common question that I am asked uh, very often, and that is with regard to adolescent mental health. How early do signs of mental health concerns show up in the behavior of children and adolescents? 
well, how early is really, how early do we identify them is more of a question really, because as we know, we have extensive research even into parent-infant mental health. So it all starts with the mother when the child is in the womb, but then it carries through from birth, really. Mental health starts from the point of conception, really. And um, it is something that can not only impact the child, but also the whole system around the child. And as such, I think the more we are aware of it, the earlier we are aware about um, our children and our to the more we are aware of the various presentations within mental health in children, the better it is for all of us. So in a way, what I'm hearing is we it's about the whole system and not just the child. It's Absolutely. about the mother and the system and the environment, right? Absolutely. Um, another uh, area that has been, people have been very curious about, and uh, not just parents, but also uh, teachers, is how do they distinguish teachers and parents? How do they distinguish between learning abilities and serious mental health concerns? Because a lot of them say, leaves them very confused. They don't know, is this a learning disability or is this a serious mental health concern? So is there some some, uh, symptoms or is there some markers that you would like to share? Well, I suppose the difficulty is that there isn't one size that fits all and that that is the basic um, difficulty when we're looking at mental health diagnoses. Um, And the same applies to learning disability as well. However, uh, when we, if we're starting with parents, parents know the children there. You know your child from birth. Um, and as such, if you notice that there are any changes to your child's behavior, very simple markers, you know, the child is not eating as well as they are, or they're eating differently, they're not sleeping quite as well, they're Perhaps they're not socializing or they're socializing in a different way. Um, there are changes to behavior that you as a parent, you know, would be best placed to pick up. So these are things that would uh, potentially indicate to you that there might be a concern there around their mental health. Always bear that in mind. Um, and the same would apply to teachers as well. Now, within the, acad- uh, within the educational scenario, it's slightly different in that um, you are in a group of children. And as such, um, the interactions that are seen by the teacher provides a very different and a very valuable perspective. Um, but it's also worth remembering that when we talk about learning disability, it is pervasive in nature. It's present again from a very young age. Um, and uh, with mental health difficulties, on the other hand, you might see waxing and waning or you might notice a change that was either to unseen. Having said that, again, it's a very, very tricky thing. It's always important wherever there are concerns. Um to be able to identify or to seek the help of a, a, a specialist who is trained in the um, you know in both the developmental issues and mental health issues, um, uh, like a child and adolescent psychiatrist, um, and get clarity on what is happening and why that is happening. The earlier we know about our children's strengths and difficulties, the better it is for us. So that's really interesting, uh, and I'm just keeping in mind the a term that you use, the waxing and waning mm. observation. Uh, so there's a waxing and a waning, and there's also an ob- uh, observation because a parent has ob- observing the child or the teachers are observing the child. Mm-hmm. So it's really making a note and accounting for some uh, differences that you see in their learning uh, or developmental Anna. cycle. Yeah. Absolutely, Anna. You're, you're yeah. very right. Yes. Okay. So, you know, we've been 
past over 100 days globally and uh, we've all been going through this COVID uh, and the lockdown and there's been a lot of discussions about uncertainty and then there are lots of terms coming up uh, and the terms are like um, resilience, uh, positive psychology, um, you know, emotional agility, all sorts of, you know, terms are being used. And in your opinion, just keeping this context, because there has been an impact on adults, children, all of us. Uh, what do you? What are your thoughts? Do we need to raise children to be more resilient, uh, or would you say that it's okay to teach them to be able to articulate and express that it's they are not okay, and it's okay to say that? Absolutely. And um, they are, again, interrelated because you can't separate resilience from acceptance, can you really? So the, um, absolutely. But the first step will have to be acknowledgement and acceptance because that has to come first. And that in itself bring a brings a different strength and a different resilience that I think would be more enduring because it's um, then you're accepting, yes, there is a difficulty there. Now, how can I overcome it, which is the first step really to resilience building? Um, so in that sense, I think um, it's very important for us. And again, um, you know, as a society, certainly, I think it's very important that it's applicable both to boys and girls, because it's okay for boys to cry as well as girls to cry and accept it and better out than in, I always say. Actually, I find that really interesting because I also have been believing that, that to be resilient, you have to account and uh, accept uh, the realities Mm. And I've been sharing with people that, you know, even children, you need to give them age-appropriate information uh, mm -hmm. because they also observe the, their parents and their parental behavior, mm. which really leads me uh, to the next question, uh, mm -hmm. saying that they are perceiving, they are observing. How uh, do the mental health conditions in parents impact or affect their children? Um, this is a... Gosh, um, in so many ways, isn't it? I mean, if we if we are to look at research, we know that there is trans a transgenerational kind of transmission of some parenting styles. We know um, again, mental health itself has mental illness itself has a genetic component, though not obviously. Though that's only one aspect of the equation. Um, but uh, parents who are mentally ill are communicating so many things all at once and all whilst trying to make sense of things themselves. So it's such a difficult and confusing scenario for a child. The child may be put in a position of being a carer for their parents whilst you know, the law of nature is that a parent is the nurturer and the carer for the child. Um, and as such, uh, where the child is a carer or is expected to or is almost kind of pushed into growing up so fast or kind of manage things for themselves or perhaps even for a parent who is not able to, it is a massive learning curve. It makes the child, um, again, every child responds differently, but it does put, it does make the child more vulnerable, unfortunately, to the effects of developing um, mental illness themselves or just, just, just kind of not being able to manage the stress the way they would be able to with a with the support of a responsible adult. So it's um, unfortunately that again the depth of uh, the the breadth of mental illness is such that you know it's again it's very different dif difficult to say that this is what is going to happen because when you have a parent who's depressed that's very different having a parent who's got a bipolar illness where you actually see the parent 
go high and low at the same time. Yeah, or if there is an instance where the parent is very, very anxious, then that kind of makes the child start to wonder as to what is what is normal, what is okay and what isn't. Um, so every situation is different. Um, but if we are to look purely at research, yes, I mean, there is certainly um, a greater incidence of greater association with mental illness for obvious reasons. Um, but also we have interestingly um, research that shows that children who are exposed to adverse circumstances, yes, of course, you know, it, is, it, it does become a snowball effect and lead on to mental illness in some cases. There are some cases where they do develop the resilience we've been talking about as well. So it is, yeah, it's just about identifying it at the right time and making sure that they, they seek help. That's the most important thing that they're supported to do that. So that leads me to the next question, which says that, so we were talking about accounting for the reality and therefore that is a, a component of re resilience. And therefore, if uh, there is a parent who's, uh, you know, go undergoing some uh, mental illness and the child is part of that system, mm -hmm. uh, at, who do you think should be actually giving this information to the child about the mental health condition of the parent and um, how much information do you give and what do you actually, how do you share this information? Gosh, it's a, it's a very difficult question because again, every situation is unique. Uh, but as a principle, it's always helpful that the child is helped to make sense of what's happening. Oh. The earlier, the better. Oh. It doesn't have to be labeled as mental illness, but the child needs to get a sense. The child needs a narrative that they can identify with and understand, which is so important for their development. And um, that's, that, that is the key really now. Who, 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 it can be anybody. It can be any responsible adult um, who is in a situation where they are, you know, with the child or have a, any relationship or an interaction with the child. It could be a teacher, a trusted um, adult within the family circles, um, a mother's friend, it could be anyone. Um, but uh, of course, it, it, it all needs to be understood in the context of the parent being on board with things as well. Um, because this shouldn't be a situation where the child is given a narrative that the parent themselves does not, uh, the parent themselves find, um, uh, fi finds it hard to um, kind of explain to the child moving forward. Um, so it, it again, uh, it just reemphasizes what we've been talking about earlier, Anna, about how there needs to be a systems approach to dealing with a child and how it is the system that is, as they say, it takes a village to raise a child, isn't right. it? And um, it is so true, especially in a situation where there is a family member or a, a known person with mental illness, um, how people around them can rally around irrespective of the stigma and the perceptions and support the child and family. So in a way, what I'm hearing is in this, the system itself, uh, okay, so one, you have the resilience of the child, but you also have what I would call systemic resilience, and that is uh, the accounting of the situation or, you know, whatever the circumstances are, needs to, in a way, be accepted by the system so mm -hmm. that the system is also supportive of the child to have a narrative. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, uh, yes. which then leads me to the next question. Um, what do you think would be the impact on a child if uh, there has been a death by suicide or even the very uh, 
talk or, or, or the theme of talking to them about suicide? Yeah, it's unfortunate that suicide seems to be in the air almost and in the news. I mean, there's no way children can escape, isn't it, knowing about it. Unfortunately, uh, Bangalore and, uh, you know, uh, India have the dubious distinction of the highest number of uh, youth suicides. Um, it's, it's very unfortunate. Uh, but it also reinforces to us the importance of, you know, early awareness. Early awareness, again, helping the child make sense of what's happening. Um, it's tricky. It's Again, there is no one. I keep coming back to this. There is no one answer. There is no correct answer. Um, but again, sitting down with a child, communication is key, making them aware, isn't it, of, of kind of, and now, of course, we have easy access to the internet, which compounds things because children might choose to just go and look up for themselves on the internet and end up with a whole load of unhelpful information. And for children themselves who are feeling, uh, who are getting kind of distressing thoughts like that, uh, again, you know, they, it is important that before a situation arrives where they're seeking to access help online or through chat rooms or through unregulated means, that they're made aware that these are your um, kind of support systems. This is what you should do uh, if you're feeling distressed. So it's very important to equip them with the right knowledge about what mental illness is about, what can potentially make uh, people, just, just in very simple terms, even sitting down, you can sit down an eight-year-old child and explain to them, look, um, it is very, sometimes people go through so much stress that they feel so distressed and they feel that they're not able to see what they want to be, say, when they're 18. Um, and it is okay uh, to feel that way, but you don't need to feel that way. And that is where you need to ask for help at the earliest. And these are the people you can talk to. And this is what you need to do. Uh, do not try and get information off the internet. So this explaining it even to an eight or a nine-year-old child in very simple language that they can understand is so important, isn't it? Because they are going to pick up the morning newspaper and all they will read about is potentially a suicide or a rape or you know um, acts of violence. So that is unfortunately what it is today. So it's not... Yeah. Yes. So that's really, in, um, you know, I think that's really important what you're saying that we do need to talk to them and for them also to be able to share and articulate if they're not feeling good, that that's okay that they're not mm -hmm. feeling good, but there are ways mm -hmm. that you can support them. Uh, one of the confusions which I've experienced in, especially in the Indian context is uh, the parents and adults are confused at what age uh, do they actually seek professional support from a, um, an adolescent psychiatrist, which is a new term uh, for them, not many, because everybody no now knows the term psychiatrist, but not about an adolescent psychiatrist. Mm. So, you know, there's a confusion at what age do, uh, you know, uh, parents ask or request for their children to be actually get support from a psychiatrist. So I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist, and in clinical practice, um, I see children from anywhere between 18 months to 18 years. Now, in India, um, um, sometimes we might see young adults as well, because culturally we're much younger than the West, yes? Uh, but certainly, um, developmental conditions, say, like autism or ADHD, we do tend to come across that. 
um, very early, very early, and sometimes it might be much earlier than that as well. Um, at, in, in, in cases where children are very, very young, if they're infants, um, then of course, again, it's about working with the mother, it's about working with the pediatrician, but all in all, you know, having an integrated working system uh, but there is no, there is no hard and fast rule. I think, as I said, you know, mental illness, um, the awareness of mental illness and kind of mental health um, nurturing comes from birth, really, or from 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 the prenatal and the perinatal period. Um, so it's children, uh, parents can approach um, a child and adolescent psychiatrist as early as they feel they could do. Um, very, um, very practically, um, certainly, with child and adolescent psychiatrists, it is um, they. They we we tend to see people approaching this around kind of preschool age, which is when you know the difficulties are starting to surface, and our children are just starting school, and parents are confused as to what's happening. Is this is the right school for my child, or you know, moving further on, middle childhood, where there might be issues around bullying or. Um, you know, anxieties, not associating with peers. And of course, you know, any transition, if it becomes difficult, say whether it's school transition or a developmental transition, um, potentially they become adolescents, they're pre-pubertal or pubertal around that time, we tend to see um, kind of a flurry of difficulties as well. And teenage, of course, is it's such a volcano, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> We've all been there. We've all been there. There's no rational explanation for adolescence and what happens, um, but um, which makes it harder because it's about identifying what is adolescence and what isn't. Um, and that is the trickiest bit, which is where child and adolescent psychiatrists um, come into, um, you know, they have a very crucial role to play uh, because children, I think the most important message I'd like to say is that children are not miniature adults. So, it is very important to have developmental training and a developmental perspective, which comes with the, with the training of a child and adolescent psychiatrist, yeah. um, because that helps. Because we are at this position where we, we are in a position to actually make a positive difference to the child's trajectory. We're able to identify the, the, the nature of the difficulties and deal with it then, which puts a very big responsibility on this particular, you know, on us as a speciality. Okay. Um, but with that needs to come the right kind of, you know, training and support, um, which, um, which of course, now awareness is growing about child and adolescent psychiatry is a very kind of a distinct um, subspeciality within mental health and within psychiatry itself. Um, and yes, that would be a very key thing. Children are not miniature adults. So the dose that you, if you're giving an 18-year-old uh -huh. 10 milligrams doesn't mean that you give um, an 8-year-old um, half the dose. It doesn't work that way, unfortunately. It's not simplistic. It's more complex. Because at every, every six months, you see an exponential increase in learning and children are such sponges. The learning is both positive and negative and absorbing everything within their environment. So um, the developmental perspective is very, very important. I'm glad you highlighted the developmental perspective and also the importance in for us to understand uh, the difference between an adult psychiatrist and a child and adolescent psychiatrist and how there is a focus uh, in, the sub in the child and adolescent psychiatry on developmental the in the you know developmental areas i'm just wondering when you say this uh, in a country like india uh, what do you think is the 
relationship between the you know psychiatrist and the counselor or therapist uh, in this context now what are your what's your thinking so um having been having spent most of my working life in the west and having worked uh, in the west uh, quite a lot but over the past few years of course working very closely in india as well and with uh, our professionals like yourself anna yeah. i think um what what's come across um and uh, uh what's come across is that um in the west um there are already integrated models of working that are set but that is within the context of a public health service which includes mental health um and here i'm talking specifically about the uk and of course it's different um the uk and europe have um an integrated mental health care system that's part of the public health care system largely in a very uh, broad manner um and uh, that of course is a very different um scenario to the infrastructure in india where it's largely privatized healthcare and individual uh, kind of uh, specialists or professionals uh, which makes it all the more important uh, for professionals um therapists like you and i uh, psychiatrists like me to work together um in an integrated way because the, the the closer and more cohesive we work the better it is for um you know in terms of systems understanding and in terms of kind of um working with uh the parent and family as well um and uh i've had um some wonderful experiences um in india of therapists who have been very open to the idea of integrated working and it has worked very very well um but it's still largely i think um it's in pockets so we need to promote um kind of a more interactive conversations between child and adolescent psychiatrists and therapists and again you know training is key supervision is key that needs to come in as you would agree with me um that uh, especially when you're working with children and young people it makes it all the more important that the person who is dealing because the guiding principle in medicine is you know do no harm so we need to make sure that when we're working with a very vulnerable you know subset of uh, people um uh, or little ones or very vulnerable families that we are in a position to be able to work together to provide the best for the child and um it's wonderful that i have managed to get these relationships going in india but you know getting these going within the privatized bit within the private healthcare sector is of course it's again in pockets and we need to make it more standardized is um it would be wonderful if you could make it more standardized it would be brilliant so then my would you think that we really need to make a conscious effort in uh the public health system of india especially uh, with regard to children and mental health concerns and especially now in the current context uh, more so because mm-hmm. of uh you know they're at home there's an impact on uh the last few months on their own narrative on the child's narrative mm-hmm. uh would you what would you what are your thoughts about us actually uh you know working in in a way in in building this uh the mental health concerns of children in the public health system because you're you are saying that it's in pockets and it's in private you know in the privatized space mm-hmm. absolutely and um there definitely has been a shift a paradigm shift uh, over the few years that i've observed the recent few years more certainly but we've got a long way to go we've got a long way to go both with mental health but in particular with child and adolescent mental health 
But the unfortunate reality of today's society where we are seeing the impact of the pressures on children, it's actually forced us all to sit up and think and think clearly, more clearly about what needs to be done. And of course, with the new introduction of online schooling and everything, a whole new gamut of you know uh, difficulties open up. Um, and of course, the explosion in social media, the whole lot. It's a very different world. Um, so yes, absolutely. I think we have to put our heads together and rethink something. Um, uh, over the last few years, a lot of my work has been around building awareness in the public space around child and adolescent mental health in particular. Um, and um, it would be wonderful to see a collective, a collaborative um, that comes from the public health space. Um, I think that could support this. Yeah, uh, so I would like to end by thanking you, uh, Ramya, uh, but this one more uh, thanking you and just sharing from your perspective, just kind of a, a, a thought for our listeners to understand is about uh, how this current situation uh, would, what do you think would be uh, the impact on the narrative of the child? Because uh, we have young parents also listening in and this is their concern and something that you could tell them just so that they account for this reality, not for them to become anxious, but mm -hmm. kind of account which will enable parents and children to, uh, you know, start developing their uh, ability to be resilient. Absolutely. So I would say the most important thing is know your child and know your child's world. Um, and if that means a process of self-introspection and, you know, self-improvement and self-development, then so be it. That is the way to go. Because, you know, it is not just about the child. It's also about how we grow with our children. And I hope... Um, those of you listening today, I hope we can make this journey together. I'm a mother as well to two beautiful children. And, um, you know, it, it is for me becoming a parent and learning with them. My children have taught me so many things. I never thought I would need to learn so much. But um, that is that that needs to be, you know, part of the circle of life. And um, that I think would be wonderful as we forge a lovely relationship with our children and make them all rounded citizens. So I'm going to end with by saying, just remember Ramya's lovely statement, your, your circle of life, know yourself, know your child, and know your child's world. And it's okay to introspect as adults and parents, and it's okay to relearn or unlearn, and that children do also teach us. Thank you. Thank you, Ramya, so much. Thank you so and much, Rana, Anna, for having me. And I yeah. Following your work with a lot of interest, and I, I really, I love, I enjoy the insights you bring out as well. So it's been wonderful chatting to you today. Yeah, and could you just share with the audience, Ramya? Is there, if they need to reach out to you, is there an email ID? If you could just say that, and so that in case they need to reach out. What? Sure, my, work, my work is on uh, www.ramyamohan.com and the website has an email ID as well. So if you um, Google ramyamohan.com, you should be able to get in touch with my team. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is Mind Your Mornings with Anna Chandy, a fortnightly podcast that takes you on the journey to a brave new you.